0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. We play a lot of music by jazz pianist Brad Meldow on our show, in the breaks and at the end of the show. Well, today we have a real treat. Brad Meldow went to the WNYC studios in New York to sit down at their piano for an interview and some music. He spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger. Here's Sam.
1: Brad Meldow is one of the most influential and acclaimed jazz pianists living today. A recent talk of the town item in The New Yorker said that he is, quote, arguably the greatest working jazz pianist, top five for sure, unquote. His many recordings feature a wide range of jazz and American popular song standards, but he's also known to interpret music that lies outside the typical jazz catalog, playing songs by Radiohead, Nirvana, Nick Drake, and Pink Floyd. In particular, he's had a long relationship with the music of the Beatles. Looking back at his dozens of albums— Beatles songs are peppered throughout, like Blackbird, Martha, My Dear, She's Leaving Home, and others. But now for the first time, Meldow has a record of all Beatles songs. Well, except for maybe a uh, David Bowie tune snuck in at the end. The album is called Your Mother Should Know. Brad Meldow Plays the Beatles. It was recorded live in Paris in 2020. Meldau's most common musical platform has been his trio, but he's recorded many solo albums and collaborated with musicians such as Josh Redman, Pat Metheny, and Chris Thiele, just to name a few. On his 2018 album called After Bach, he plays pieces from Bach's well-tempered clavier, as well as his own compositions inspired by them. He's very busy touring, so we were lucky to get some time with him while he was in New York, doing a week of gigs at the Village Vanguard, the historic jazz club. Meldell also has a memoir coming out this March called Formation, Building a Personal Canon, Part One, which recounts a difficult childhood and his development as an artist. Well, Brad Meldell, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks for having me. So in 2018, you had done a a concert of Bach for a concert hall in Paris, and they asked you to come back for 2020, but they wanted you to do uh, just the Beatles songs. Were you enthusiastic about that idea?
2: I was a little apprehensive at first. Um... But I had a lot of time on my hands because it was uh, just kind of right in the middle of the lockdown. So I thought, well, this would be um, something exciting to jump into. Um, it was also interesting. They, What they did was they programmed a series of concerts with various artists and they um, played the whole Beatles repertoire. So everybody, everybody played – everybody picked different tunes. So – Somebody covered Revolution Number 9 somehow. I was Whoa. always curious how that went.
1: <laughs> yeah. You slightly favor Paul McCartney songs in this album, um, and I think Paul McCartney is known for writing very strong melodies. Do you think that's why you like those songs?
2: I think very strong melodies, but um, uh, kind of to make a weird comparison, what I get from Schubert um, is these simple melodies um, under with, with this... Um, harmony under it. it's so beautiful so I, I think paul also really is a is a very subtle harmonist um and and uh, so yeah definitely both of those things
1: can you give an example of what you mean by his harmonies
2: um well it's not on the record but it always comes to mind you know maybe because everybody knows it but just what he does with blackbird which i've played a lot over the years um one thing he likes to do is what you call in classical music maybe you'd call it a pedal point it's something you find in uh in Bach and Brahms a lot where there's one, one note that goes through different chords and it's the same note. Um, and in this case uh, he's getting that from an open G string on the guitar. So you have this beautiful harmony that's moving around but always with that G in the middle of it. And that's always there.
1: So that note's like a home note that's that's throughout the piece.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's very it, and and it's grounding and, and the way it relates to everything, uh, it sort of ties it. It's also something uh, in another uh, that Thelonious Monk loved to do on something like Think of One, where the F is in everything. This is, and he has that a lot, you know, on on, on different tunes of his.
1: So w- why did you pick the song Your Mother Should Know?
2: Whew. Yeah, I just I just love it, and it, it's it's just a great example of these kind of you know miniatures that that, that Paul wrote these, these short little uh, songs that that have a, a very specific emotional world, and, and then you're in and out of there in a couple minutes, and um, it sort of leaves leaves you hanging, you know, and it, like it it and, and it's um, it's wistful, uh, which is, is an emotion I get from 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 Paul a lot. Kind of sad, happy, happy, sad.
1: Well, would you play a little bit of it for us? Sure. That's great! Thanks so much for doing that. <laughs> kind of random. <laughs> I tried to
2: pack a lot in. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, that actually answers my my next question. I was wondering how much of these are arranged that you would be playing the same all the time, but that the way you just play that now was a lot different than the version on the album.
2: Yeah, yeah, I did think about that a lot, and and in the case of that one, I huge quite closely to the arrangement as they had it and, and one fun thing about this record was it was sort of a, an orchestrational challenge um, there's so much complexity uh, to their music in all these different instruments and things happening um, and then trying to bring that all onto the piano was a, was a fun challenge and then some Im- improvising in there kind of short but they're great chords you know and then this very strange interlude And then it's just, and then it's just over, and in, in, in it's so, so many elements there all at once in a couple minutes. You know, a lot
1: of Paul McCartney songs sound like they could be from a, like a, a different era, and I think they harken back to like the music of his parents. Like his dad was a, a swing band leader, and you actually you say that you say this in a good way, but some of the Beatles songs sound frumpy to you.
2: <laughs> right, right, yeah, I use that that you know, sort of in a, in an endearing way. Um, there's a swing feeling in there. Um, but it's this kind of wistful, humorous thing uh, that, that Paul brings to it, which is no doubt, uh, like you said, the music that he heard, I think, when he was growing up. And he said that in some interviews I've heard.
1: So in the version of the song here, there and everywhere on the album, you stick to the melody pretty closely like throughout your performance. But you kind of you're reharmonizing the song as you're going along, like you're playing different chords underneath the melody. And what that does to my ear is it like, it transforms the melody because it has a different relationship to the chords. Could you uh, explain that and and also maybe give us a demonstration?
2: Yeah, that was that was one example of where I really said, "Well, let me let me step outside of the original." Uh, obviously, the the original harmony is just is so beautiful and righteous, um, and and so I sort of come back to it here and there, but. Um, <laughs> I, I think the model for that is is one of my top heroes, uh, Herbie Hancock, and, and what he did with Miles, what he did on his own records is in an, in an improvisational context, um, uh, exactly what you say, reharmonizing, putting different uh, harmony. And, and the only rule there really is to somehow make it connect with the melody. And when you get into the chromatic harmony that's possible, um, the sky's the limit. You know, as I like to say, you're always half a step away from something, you know. <laughs>
1: So how does that sound with here, there, and everywhere?
2: So if you have the original, it's, you know, it's very uh, diatonic. And then so I might... then maybe come back to it, you know, sort of ground it again of here's five going back to one. Mm. Does that
1: sort of thing work better when you have a strong melody to work with?
2: Oh, that's a, that's a great point. Absolutely. It works really well um, with, a, you know, a diatonic, which means, you know, all within one scale. In this case, it's in uh, G major. So, you know, everything is within that scale, I think. I hope I'm not going to be wrong. So that's all, you know, just in one scale. So uh, even though they have different chords, uh, it's, it's, uh, it has a simplicity there to work from.
1: If you're just joining us, we're talking to jazz pianist Brad Meldow, who has a new album called Your Mother Should Know, Brad Meldow Plays the Beatles. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. We're speaking with jazz pianist Brad Meldow. He has a new solo album called Your Mother Should Know, Brad Meldow Plays the Beatles. Here's his version of I Am the Walrus. That's Brad Maldow playing I Am The Walrus. I asked him why he chose the song for his new album.
2: Yeah, I remember that when I first heard this um, song, I I, I think I heard it on the radio. It was one of those ones I I did hear when I was a kid. And and this one, Strawberry Fields Forever, some some of the ones from Magical Mystery Tour, um, I just found them disturbing, and I didn't didn't really like them too much. Um, Also, for the benefit of Mr. Kite, you know, they were sort of like a like not necessarily a nightmare but one of those dreams you have that's kind of weird um, but with I Am The Walrus that the harmony is so interesting
1: I remember I had this album as a, as when I was a kid and the end of the song is is there's a lot of cacophony and there's a lot of weird stuff going on there's like this weird chorus of some of people saying oompa oompa yeah. Put, yeah. stick it in your jumper and then there's these old men talking and I would just put the needle back over and over again to hear that part of the song. And trying I, to figure out what, yeah. Or just what, what's going on. Like yeah, yeah. L- like trying to figure out what they're saying. I, so I imagine that that was a particularly hard part to figure out how to play because it's like there's so, it's just so dense sonically.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot going on in that song and there's these sections, you know, but the ending is really cool because it's, again, it's, it's diatonic and, and it's almost um, willfully naive what they do. They just start on A's in in unison, and then they just go the other direction. You can do it on the white keys of the piano. So what they're doing is just going in other directions, down on the bottom and up on the top. So it's... Keeps on going. (laughs) That's a very, very condensed um, 20 times as fast, <laughs> right, you know. Right, So I had a fun time doing on, that on the piano and getting into a little, I wouldn't say virtuosic, but but really kind of fleshing that out on the piano.
1: Yeah, that that's a really cool part of your rendition. Would you mind playing a little bit of this?
2: Sure, maybe I'll do that ending. So okay, great. Whip it off, I don't know.
1: That's great. That's, that's hair raising. <laughs> <No. Cool. laughs> yeah. The, uh, the interesting thing about that, like the song fades, it's unlike, there's another song a day in the life where they sort of do get to that that's resolution, true. but yeah, but that's right. That's I'm right. glad you, I'm glad you don't fade out. Yeah. I guess uh, I'm, I'm kind of thinking
2: of my version because the, it's literally the, it's in a minor at that point And, and uh-huh. of course the a is the lowest note on the piano, which I love to play if I have <laughs> an excuse to
3: play. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, I read that
1: in your 20s, you decided
2: to spend more time
1: with classical music in order to develop your left hand a little bit more. Um, Were there particular composers that you concentrated on?
2: Certainly Bach. I I, I really went headlong into the well-tempered clavier. Um, And um, I I think it was, uh, for whatever reason, I I always, um, Brahms was a composer who was just really close to my heart when I I played Brahms' music for the first time when I was a kid. And then... When I got to New York, I don't know why that was, but I really started discovering more of his music and sort of went on a mission, Um, his chamber music, his choral music, his four symphonies, everything, his leader. Um, And then just from all that, there's, you know, in that piano literature, there's always a call to do stuff with your left hand, you know? People think of Bach a lot, certainly, but, you know, in in Brahms and Beethoven, you know, in in all these composers, um, there's, there's things that the left hand you know that that don't come as much in and i and I wouldn't want to say that you know jazz you don't have to use your left hand as much, but there's a certain kind of jazz that's a lot of um, a, a time period that that's that's and gravy, which is kind of beginning with bebop and and going through you know modern stuff you know right up through the middle sixties let's say where the piano's in a rhythm section and the left hand is playing a role that's a chord it doesn't play melodies as much. So so it doesn't uh, need to be used in that way. Um, as a result of that, um, because I hadn't been playing classical music, I stopped classical lessons when I was uh, 13 and then went headlong into jazz. So my, my left hand, by the time I was 19, was in a way it wasn't as strong as it was when I was 13. You know, it didn't have the fluidity. So I, it was sort of a, a little bit of an ego thing, but, you know, just I, I want to get this back, you know.
1: And then did you start incorporating more complicated left hand movements within your playing in jazz
2: yeah, yeah, that kind of kind of happened uh, intuitively and, and, and naturally, and of course, there were jazz pianists who who were you know at the top of the heap for that um, in the small group. Um, uh, certainly, Oscar Peterson, who was one of the first ones, uh, his left hand was unbelievable. Phineas Newborn, another one, and Art Tatum—you know—for going uh, earlier into that 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 earlier style. So there, there were one those ones as well were um, you know big lights for me.
1: I want to play something. This is from earlier in your career. Um, this is with your trio. It's from the Art of the Trio, Volume Two, Live at the Village Vanguard, and you're playing the Thelonious Monk song, Monk's Dream. And this, to me, it sounds like you're really doing independent things with your right hand and your left hand. It's a really intense part of your solo where there's just these waves of sound, but you still hear the melody like woven through. But first, just before we listen to that, could you just play this like the simple melody for Monk's Dream so we can hear it? (laughs) Yeah. So, so let's hear you playing this live with your trio. Um, this is Monk's Dream. take a short break here. If you're just joining us, our guest is the jazz pianist and composer Brad Meldow. His new album is called Your Mother Should Know. Brad Meldow plays the Beatles. More after break. This is Fresh Air.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor First Republic Bank. You set your financial goals years ago, and now you're reaching them. This year, you're ready to do more than you thought because you didn't come this far to only come this far. With First Republic, you get a personal banker, a consistent point of contact who's ready to help you go the rest of the way. Learn more at firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender.
1: This is Fresh Air. I'm Sam Brigger sitting in for Terry Gross. And right now seated at a piano bench in a studio at WMYC, is jazz pianist and composer Brad Meldow, who's joined us for a conversation and some music. The acclaimed musician has a new album called Your Mother Should Know. Brad Meldow plays the Beatles. He also has a memoir coming out in March titled Formation, Building a Personal Canon, Part 1. So, Brad, you're, as I said, uh, you have a memoir coming out in March called Formation, um, and it's the story of your youth and development as an artist. It's, it's very personal, and it's, it's a pretty distressing read. Um, you felt like an outsider a lot of your youth, in part because you were adopted, uh, you, but you were also you were bullied as a kid. You were sexually groomed by your high school principal, and the traumas of your childhood led, led you to feel alienated as a young adult, confused about your sexuality, and, and as you say, filled with self-loathing, for which you sought relief in alcohol and drugs, eventually heroin, which almost led to your death. W- why at this point in your life did you decide to write this book and, and publish it?
2: She is pretty heavy when you hear it all back like that. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, it's all in there.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it had been sort of this big blob on a hard drive for at least 15 years, and and there were pieces of it there uh, about some of um, the kind of political slash musical discussion. There were a couple of the memories. Um, so I, I knew I had a book in there somewhere, but I think for whatever reason— um, Over the years, I I found a story in there, and I think um, it, for whatever reason, it took kind of half a lifetime later past the actual events to get the story right. Um, And the way that's played out for me as a musician is that I think in in some very kind of mysterious way, a a lot of those really difficult experiences made me the musician... um, that I am, you know, for instance, this kind of loneliness and alienation that I experienced. Um, uh, I, I think, and I don't like to analyze myself too much, but I think there's a kind of something that I can get to, for instance, in playing a ballad uh, and and sort of going in this interior zone that's informed by, you know, experiences that I, that I wouldn't have asked for, you know, at the time, you know.
1: You said that you always felt a- apart from other people and that at first you kind of felt that that meant you were inferior, but that you were able to sort of transform that feeling and imagine it like that you were sort of this cool outsider. And you say that you even thought of yourself as somehow marked as different, like like Cain from the Bible, you, Cain who kills his brother Abel, God marks him for that act. Can can you talk about that a little bit more?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, in, in the book I'm talking about some of these experiences, sort of how I, I always knew I was adopted, Um and it wasn't a traumatic messed up adoption by any means, but I think uh, there's there's a little sketch I give there of, of when I felt how that was different when we were doing this um, family tree thing in fifth grade um, and 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 that experience and and then as I as I got older, I discovered you know that my my sexuality was fluid and and you know um, and it was 1984 or whatever and then I had these Really, not so great experiences um, that I describe in the book too. That that all gave it a negative hue, um, and and so then I wanted to make a story about that. So I think so I think the Cain story was uh, a way of 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 sort of making that special. And and when I read that that sort of reverse reading of of the Cain and Abel, it was in Herman Hesse's great uh, early novel, *Damien*. Uh, where he talks about that you know everybody says that Cain that was you know he was marked and then he was banished, and, and God put a mark on him, but um has, has this idea that the that the character uh, Damien is explaining that no actually it was the other way around you know that that they, that Cain was really he was special and, and and he was cooler than everyone, you know so it was it was a story that I tried to put on myself, but but in in fact it wasn't really quite right, you know because there was still. There was still the the pain involved with it, you know. But it, but it was a it was a way that I started to differentiate myself, probably in a way that wasn't very helpful.
1: So when you were in high school, there were all these cliques, and you didn't really feel like you fit into a lot of them. There was a jazz clique, but but there was a lot of you were dealing with a lot of bullying. But you you fell into um, a group of older musicians, jazz musicians, who would hire you on to to go to weddings and play at parties, and then you actually even had like a, a, I think a regular gig at a club in Hartford called the 880.
2: Yeah, that's right, yeah. And um,
1: and with these older musicians, you kind of found a community. What was it like hanging out with all these old guys?
2: It was really fun. You know, there was one in particular, uh, Larry Donatelli, um, who's a drummer, who gave me, um, and also Joel Fromm, who's a, a fantastic uh, tenor saxophonist and... Another guy, Pat Simmerly, now who's a, um, a classical composer. He gave us all um, a chance. Um, you know, we were just really beginning, and he gave us a gig uh, at the Eight Eighty, uh, and he mentored us. You know, and and that's that's really important. Um, and and he was my first model for a, a, a bohemian jazz musician, and I loved it. Um, you know, bohemian in the sense of. Um, he said whatever he wanted he didn 't live in in the kind of suburban we we lived in in West Hartford, which was a very suburban kind of conservative um, nothing particularly bad about it, but kind of stifling and 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 that was the model for me. Um, and also a kindness there, too, you know. Um, and, and that's what I experienced as, as when I came to New York and I started meeting older jazz musicians who were also mentor figures like Jimmy Cobb, the, the great Jimmy Cobb, the the, the drummer, and uh, Junior Mance, the pianist who I studied with. Um, Different musicians I worked with, uh, there, there, was a, there was a kindness there as well. Um, so it, pretty much nothing but positive in that sense for these older models, you know. Which, which definitely I, I think was made me think, yeah, I, I, I want to do this. So you, you know, you were in New York in the late '80s
1: when there were just these lots of jazz clubs, um, some of them which no longer exist, and you could go and see terrific musicians like every night like veterans of the bebop era and hard bop era were still playing what what were some of the
2: acts you would go see well there was a there was i mean really the one as a pianist um you know or just any jazz musician was um bradley's which was on university i think in 12th or 13th and that was that was really the piano room um and so you know always somebody on a top level and and always of that generation i don't think they really when bradley was around um he he wouldn't book younger you know so that was cedar walton that was tommy flanagan that was barry harris kenny Barron, hank jones um yeah players players on that level so they were players that they were pianists i had been listening to on, on records for the last four years uh, and then, and then now, I was getting it. I'd go into Bradley's, and and I'd, I'd sit at the bar. If I was lucky, I'd get this seat, you know, close to the action, and just, and you know, uh, incredible, just sublime to to be witnessing that.
1: Would you ever go up to them and say, "Excuse me, sir, I'm I'm a jazz pianist myself," or was that were you too nervous to do that?
2: I was too nervous. I don't think I ever approached any of them. You didn't, um, know. yeah. I was just too. I was always kind of shy. Um, I, you know, McCoy Tyner was another titan um, for me, and and to me he had you know with the work he did in, in the in the classic Coltrane quartet. Um, there's a spiritual authority. Those 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 guys were like um, they were like priests, you know, in the music. They uh, and I remember I'd go to Sweet Basil's to see him play with his trio, and I'd be there sitting at the bar, and he'd come up and and he'd have his tonic water, and he'd be sitting next to me at the bar and i couldn't talk to him i couldn't i just i couldn't you know that would have been the moment you know
1: would you try to absorb some of him just sitting there
2: <laughs> yeah i guess so i guess so you know just sort of try not to look at him but be <laughs> looking at him you know
1: so when you were young you know you would emulate your heroes like one night you'd go out and maybe you'd sound like mccoy tyner or maybe bobby, bobby timmons but you say you went on the road with the alto sax player christopher Holiday. And uh, and you say you came back with your own style. What what changed out on the road?
2: I think it was it was interesting because it's not something I realized myself, but it was the first road gig I got, and um, and um, we went out for a good eight months, kind of really hitting it hard. Um, you know, playing five nights a week uh, in the states, and I think just the the act of playing so much live, like I was saying earlier, you. You change as a player you know from what you study and listen to and all that work, but you you really change in the gig to gig experience, and somehow, having that regular gig when i when I came back um friends of mine like um like sam hell the 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 pianist and uh, peter Bernstein and, and different people who I played a lot with in 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 New York, they said wow you've you've got something that's different now. it's like it kind of you know." kind of like your thing man and 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 i couldn't see it myself but i think that was maybe when i started to get something that i recognize as as me
1: um w- how would you describe
2: you <laughs> well i would describe me by by you know everybody else you know it's uh an, an amalgamation of of everything everything i love you know um so it's it's all those all those players I named it's, you know, it's Billy Joel, it's Brahms, <laughs> it's all of it put together. And then uh, you mix that with my personality. And I think maybe what I have a talent for, um, is some way of assimilating it, um, versus sort of Uh, paraphrasing different players, you know, which can also be good. And there's a lot of, you know, um, players who do that really well who are like, oh, now he's doing this Errol Garner thing and now it goes into some Wynton Kelly and, you know, it's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, But I think my talent is more sort of bringing them together um, and so you might not know who it is. You know, for instance, when I tell people um, who who's informing a uh, performance. If someone says, I really liked what you did there and, and it reminded me of uh, uh, Radiohead, I said, well, yeah, actually that's more from Chopin or vice versa, you know? So so maybe people don't even know what those influences are and, you, and you've sort of managed to make them your own to a degree, but it's still it's from all that stuff.
1: You incorporate a lot of different styles into your playing. Can you sort of show us like... The difference between like sort of modal playing and maybe like more bebop lines like how those sound different the tonalities there
2: yeah um, so if if we're going back to a C blues uh, mm-hmm. same tempo uh, a more bebop would be. <laughs> And then same tempo, same key, uh, C blues, more in a modal sort of, I'll say uh, McCoy and Herbie, let's say. Okay.
1: So the second one, you're sort of going outside the harmony a little bit more? Is yeah, that...
2: going outside of the harmony and uh, a, a little more, if I'm in a mode, it's more a mode and not a diatonic bass. So that gets really into kind of in the weeds uh, musical yeah, wonky <laughs> stuff. Yeah, But you if, know what I mean. That's because you're asking the question. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, as a piano player, you can't head out on the road with your instrument strapped to your back. You have to kind of play... The hall or the club's piano does that prove challenging?
2: Definitely, yeah, yeah. And I have a fantastic uh, tour manager and sound engineer, Vincent Rousseau, who I've been with for um, almost twenty years. So we um, go around and we collect the serial numbers of all the Steinways, and um, and then we give a simple grading system from one to four, um, and there's even a zero, and a zero means. Absolutely, never play that again. <laughs> yeah. And and then one is you'd really have to fix this up, you know, all the way to four, which I've only um, I've only had two fours in the fifteen or so years we've been doing it. So f- four is the golden, incredible Steinway D. Um, and and so uh, so that's 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 one way uh, of of trying to sort of police it, you know, because what you have a lot is you have a promoter. Um, who will say uh, you get and the and the piano sounds atrocious and then they'll say oh well so and so played it you know I always no, used they to get, loved it you know, yeah. Chick Corea played it you know uh, <laughs> three months ago and uh, he loved it you know <laughs> yeah and you know you never know whether that's true the other thing that happens is that a piano can be really um, great and then a year later. Um, it's. It doesn't sound as good. They need to be maintained. Um, you can't just have a Steinway. Just because it's a Steinway, it's going to be great. You know, they have to be regulated and voiced and everything.
1: Well, what, what do you do when you come a, a, upon a zero or a one? Like, do you just have to make do?
2: There's only been, I think, maybe two times where I've downright refused. Um, and I've never called off a concert. But um, then they came through and they got another piano. Um, but no, most of the time, uh, it's it's making, yeah, making do with what it is, trying to work with a technician who's there to try to, you know, do a little damage control and, and, then, and then make do with what is. And then, again, like I was mentioning earlier, don't tell the audience and complain, you know. That's the most frustrating part because you're playing. And let's say a lot, a lot of problems you encounter with a piano that's not in good shape is that it has no dynamic range, because of the the condition the hammers are in. Um, you have, instead of being able to play pianissimo to fortissimo, you have a range that's more like mezzo piano to mezzo forte, or only loud, you know? And then you have to make do with that, and then, you know, you play the concert, and someone says, oh, it was great, and blah, 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 and you just think, I could have showed you so much more, you know? But you can't say that, you know? So that's, that's the most frustrating part, I think. It's like, if only they knew what I could do, you know, if this piano was in good shape. If you're just joining us, we're
1: talking to jazz pianist Brad Meldau who has a new album called Your Mother Should Know, Brad Meldau Plays the Beatles. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. As I said before, in your memoir, you talk about the difficulties you had um, stopping using heroin. You were addicted to heroin um, for many years. And, you know, recovering addicts are often told to avoid like the people they did drugs with, or like, or even the places where they did drugs, right. or the kinds of places that they did drugs. Um, and jazz is a music of the night, and and clubs. And I was wondering if that can be difficult for you sometimes. I mean, looking at your touring schedule, you're often playing concert halls, but you also play at clubs.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's interesting that time period I'm I'm writing about when 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 I was uh, in the addiction um uh there were only a few other jazz musicians who were getting into that and and I think it was more of something that was going on in the 90s with with heroin um which um you know you had like supermodels doing it and A-list actors and and it was something so that was something more that I found um I was using heroin with you know NYU students and and you know people people who were uh, these you know kind of privileged kids like myself um, so so I didn't uh, get pulled too much into the classic um, you know idea that you have with with heroin and, and jazz I think that time had already sort of come and gone you know
1: the idea that like Charlie Parker did heroin so I
2: should probably do yeah exactly too. exactly is it
1: hard to for you to listen to music that you recorded from that period.
2: Not so much. I mean, w- what I do hear um, is that there was, and I kind of try to stress this in the book, I, I probably should have underlined it more, is that um, it wasn't so much that I, I, it impeded my playing, but I was kind of on autopilot um, in the sense that I wasn't developing. I had this natural thing I could do, and, and it even had something that was my own. But it wasn't developing. And I remember that I, I finally got clean. I I, I went to a, a rehab in, in Los Angeles, and then I stayed there. And uh, I got my Steinway B that I still have now, and, and I had an apartment, and I started practicing and, 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 you know, getting on my feet again. And it just flowed. All of a sudden, I was writing, and, and, um, and my playing was developing in, in a way that—and uh, then it just went from there. So it really only flourished— um, so i can listen to that but that that's that's what i'm aware of most of all is that it's kind of this autopilot you know in a way
1: you know in your memoir the young brad milledout comes across as a pretty unhappy person someone not at home in the world um but you know the book ends i think you're like in your late tw- 20s almost 30 at that point um you're now in your early 50s you're married you have three kids you couldn't ask for a more successful musical career. You're considered one of the most important jazz musicians of your generation. Like, have you found your place in the world? Are you? Do you feel more comfortable in your own skin? Yeah, definitely,
2: definitely. Um, things are things are just easier that as you get older. You know, I, I think I think uh, thank goodness. Otherwise, I don't know. I, I think um, yeah, I had a friend read the, the the manuscript early on who was with me for a lot of that. And he said, wow, man, this is pretty depressing, you know. And if, because I remember we had a, a lot of good times too, you know. And and that certainly was the case too. So I, I tried to describe some of the, you know, the ecstasy of hearing all this great music and some close friendships. But it's it's definitely a, a, a dark story there. And, and um, yeah, thank goodness things haven't been dark. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed now, really.
1: Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Um, I was hoping that you would play a little bit of Golden Slumbers um, as we end this interview this is a another Paul McCartney song that you describe in your liner notes as an amen inducing ballad <laughs> why Why did you pick this song
2: um, you know it's it's that zone of Paul where these I think these um, um, these kind of cadences that are uh, yeah they it, it's like it has a church quality to it you know another let it be hey Jude have that um, and then you see on his first solo record, uh, right after um, this, this one, uh, Abbey Road, uh, there's a tune, Maybe I'm Amazed, that's just a great one, uh, that's the same kind of Amen thing.
1: Well, Brad Meldau, thank you so much for being
2: here today on Fresh Air. Thanks for having me, Sam.
0: Brad Meldow spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger. His new album, Your Mother Should Know, Brad Meldow Plays the Beatles, comes out this week. We'd like to thank WNYC for letting us use their studio and their piano, and engineer Irene Trudell for recording Meldow. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, as the Manhattan District Attorney's Office presents evidence to a grand jury about Donald Trump's hush payments to Stormy Daniels, we'll get an inside look into the criminal investigation of Trump's finances. Our guest will be Mark Pomerantz, who worked on the case, then resigned last year after a new DA decided not to file charges. Pomerantz's new book is called The People vs. Donald Trump. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Briggert, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne Rebo Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross.